You're listening to coverage of the 2020 Convention of the American Council of the Blind. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Multicultural Affairs Committee presentation. We are very glad that you joined us this afternoon. Now, in a normal year, we would just have finished our luncheon and would be settling down with our dessert and our coffee and preparing for our afternoon program. However, unfortunately, we were not able to do that this year. But I want to take a moment to thank our uh, the staff, the officers, the radio uh, managers, just everyone who has worked so diligently to make this convention still happen this year. So thanks to you all. Everything has been wonderful so far, and we really appreciate all that you've done to make this happen. So my name is Peggy Garrett, and I am chair of the Multicultural Affairs Committee, better known as MCAC. MCAC was established in 1986 out of the organization recognizing that minorities were facing a lot of discrimination and needed to have the assistance of the organization. The mission of MCAC is to create and establish and maintain a conclusive environment that embraces and values cultures, diversity, and differences, but all within the framework of ACB. Our committee meets regularly uh, between conventions, and as some of you probably are aware of, we hold various focus groups that discuss topics that are relevant to all of our members. We have had uh, held book discussions on several different books, uh, as a matter of fact, we have another one coming up on August the 25th where we will be discussing the warmth of other suns. So stay tuned for that. There will be an article in the August Braille Forum as well as information uh, being disseminated over the ACB list. If anyone is interested in getting more information uh, about our, our group, you may contact me. Again, my name is Peggy Garrett. And I can be reached at 281-438-9665 or via email at prcgarrett, and that's G-A-R-R-E-T-T, at sbcglobal.net. Our theme for this year is Bridging the Gap. And that sounds kind of vague, I'm sure, but it covers a lot of different territory, a lot of different areas that are very relevant to all of the things that are going on and affecting all of our lives at this time. We're very fortunate to have Dr. Jean Brooks as our moderator this year. So I'm going to turn it over to him, and he's going to take over and introduce the rest of the panel but I'd like to say thank you, Dr. Brooks, thank you to our panelists, and thank you all for listening. 
And hang around once the presentation is over because you'll have an opportunity to call in with your questions. Dr. Brooks? Thank you so much, uh, Peggy, for those um, kind words. I would also like to just thank you for all of the work that you've done uh, both locally in our state and nationally. Alrighty, so I am the moderator uh, for this uh, panel uh, this afternoon. My name is Jean Brooks, and uh, I'll just be brief. Um, I am a retired lecturer from the University of Texas at Austin. I taught uh, in the Department of Vocational Rehabilitation Counseling Program, as well as the Department of Special Ed. Um, and I've been pretty active in disability-related uh, issues, uh, blindness uh, issues. I've uh, served um, at the pleasure of one of our governors um, um, on a, the board for the School for the Blind. That was a great learning experience for me. Um, I'm currently involved um, on the Mayor's Committee for People with Disabilities here in Austin, Texas. Um, I also um, am serving as a board member for the Travis Association for the Blind, uh, better known as the Lighthouse for the Blind. Okay, so what we're going to do, um, and I, we're going to um, to start off um, by allowing each of you all to um, introduce yourselves. Um, I'm going to just say we have uh, Charles uh, with us, Charles Mossett. Charles, um, we have Cheryl and Michael Garrett. Um, and what I'd like to do is just go back. Our theme is bridging uh, the gap. And um, what we um, are faced with are um, some pretty challenging issues and questions given the COVID-19 pandemic that we find ourselves in. Um, and the question that I want uh, the panelists to, uh, to, to talk about um, will be, will deal with, will, will, de will deal with the, the effects of the, the uh, pandemic. Uh, will it broaden the gap or will it make things better for people with disabilities, uh, specifically folks who are blind and visually impaired and people of color? Um, so what I'd like to do is I'm going to go around. I want Cheryl to start out because uh, she's going to have to leave fairly soon. Um, Cheryl, why don't you give us a brief um, just background on, on yourself and your, your works, and uh, we'll go from there. Okay. Thank you so much. I'm so honored to have been asked to be part of this panel. Um, so uh, my name is Cheryl Cummings. I'm a member of um, MCAC and my work uh, about 15 years ago, I founded and currently run a nonprofit organization in Boston, Massachusetts. 
It's called Our Space, Our Place. And our purpose is we provide an after-school and career exploration program for youth who are blind and low vision. Um, so when we started talking about this question about bridging the gap and what do we think uh, may or may not happen in the future, um, truly when we started talking about it, I think we were dealing with one crisis and that was the pandemic and the virus. And today, as we look at the same question, I think we have to acknowledge that we're dealing with two issues. So we're certainly still dealing with the virus, but then racism. Uh, it's been brought to everybody's attention that it's alive, it's kicking, and it's having an ongoing negative, nasty effect on the lives of people. So probably everybody's heard the data around African-Americans and other minorities um, that folks from these groups that we're dying at a rate disproportionate to our percentage of the population. You've probably also heard the reasons, you know, healthcare disparities, pre-existing conditions, underlying health issues, on and on. So when I was thinking about how to answer that question, I didn't want to rehash some of the themes and, and, and um, issues that have been brought up before. Rather, I wanted to talk about how to respond to that question by sharing a story I recently heard. It's about a man called Michael Hickson. He's from Texas. He, uh, three years ago, was in a car accident um, and suffered a significant um, cardiac arrest. And it, as a result, he was brain, uh, had a brain injury and was quadriplegic. So at the beginning of June, Michael Hickson was taken to a hospital. Soon after that, his doctors had a discussion with his wife, which the doctor talked about that Michael was somebody whose quality of life probably, I don't think that they didn't say probably, the quality of life for Michael wasn't good. Soon after that, his wife is told that Michael has passed away. And she learns that they, he passed away because the medical, uh, the hospital, his doctors, decided to withhold food and fluids from Michael because for them, quality of life, not so good. And I talk about that because here in Massachusetts, in April, when we were facing just increasing numbers of um, coronavirus cases, our governor and secretary of health and human services put out a policy that hospitals were supposed to use to guide them in their decisions around who to serve and, and who not to serve. And as you can imagine, one of those criteria that they were supposed to use was quality of life. And immediately people within the disability community started to talk about well, we've got to get that out of there. And what are we going to do? Because um, for most people, it just seemed natural that as a person with a disability, we were supposedly last the bottom of the list. Um, thankfully, our state didn't have to implement that, that policy because 
they found solutions which were to expand the number of beds that were available. So they, they withdrew the policy, but the reality is it still exists. So I talk about these because I think it's important to us because we've all had experiences where we've interacted with medical staff and they've been somewhat condescending. Uh, sometimes they listen, sometimes they don't. And Michael Hickson's death, I think, reminds us that for many people without disabilities, for them, it seems to be an automatic assumption that our lives really lack quality, that we are truly, dis uh, we can be gotten rid of. So I want to say, imagine a world where you're blind and African-American. Imagine a world where because you're blind, you're less than. And now imagine a world where because you're African-American, you're less than. COVID-19, coronavirus, has made us aware of some truths, which I think we normally would like to pretend don't exist. It's forced us to see that despite all of the work we've done for many people as a person who is blind or a person with a disability, it's okay to withhold food and fluids and let us die. So my question is, where do we go from there? What do we do to make sure that moving forward, we really get rid of that uh, reality and it's not taken for granted that we are, uh, can, can be gotten rid of. I think probably this answer isn't going to be unique because we're doing it, but I think we have to continue to do it and we have to commit to really doing this. I think we have to work. We have to fight to make sure that our humanity is enshrined in law and in policy. As individuals, we have to get involved. No more sitting on the sidelines, no more saying somebody else will take care of this for us. We know that our hospitals have patient advisory boards. We have to get on them. We have to figure out how to do that and we have to make it happen. Uh, the Trump administration we know is trying to overturn the um, Affordable Care Act. I think if you've benefited from that, or if you know people who are benefiting from that, you have to speak up. You've got to call your legislators and tell them not acceptable, not working. I think we also need to get to know our town, our city, our state, and our federal legislators. We have to make them see us as people and not some ab abstract discussion of quality of life. Great point. Great point, Cheryl. Yeah. yeah. So I think ultimately um, it's important that, that and, and I know people are already doing this, and I know we have the skills, and, and those of us who don't, there are opportunities where we can get the skills. But if nothing else, COVID-19 has shown us that no more silence. We've got it. We have to speak up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and we have to become active and we have to get out there and make our our concerns known. Cheryl, do you mind uh given your time um constraint if we have any questions from the audience for you before you leave? Mm -hmm. Cheryl will be leaving in the next 15 minutes. 
Um, can we fill some questions? Sure. Okay, so if you would like to raise your hand, if you are on a PC, you can do that with Alt-Y. If you are on a phone, um, not the app, just on the phone itself, it's star nine. If you are <clears throat> on, the, on the phone, there is a raise hand button. And if you're on a Mac, it's going to be option Y. And let's see, I, do we have any raised hand? We do, okay. Uh, Mary, I am going to, you should have a thing telling you that you are allowed to talk. Hi, hello, hi, can you hear me? Yes, we can. <laughs> yes, oh great, hi, thanks. Thanks, Cheryl. Um, so you mentioned getting involved with things like patient advisory boards, which I, I'm not familiar with. Do you know how someone might go about getting involved or what kind of, well, actually, specifically, what do patient advisory boards do, their role, and how someone could go about maybe getting involved so, with the patient? Yeah, so I don't know the, the specifics of how you actually get on the board, but each hospital, do, each hospital does have them. Um, so I would think you would start with whichever hospital you're going to. Um, I mean, maybe even before that, do a little reading on their website because they, they talk about them and they talk about sort of what the patient advisory board is doing for that particular um, hospital. So mm -hmm. I, I would certainly start there. And um, then, you know, I think you can reach out to them and express an interest in doing in getting involved. I, I, I've got to say, um, years ago, I probably would have been intimidated thinking that the only way you could get on an advisory board is that you had to have money <laughs> and you have to be <laughs> wealthy somehow. Um, but I think um, hospitals and, and other entities that they've started to acknowledge that it's important to have the voice of the community. So I think you raise your hand and you say, I'm part of the community. And I wanted, I, I'd like to join. So that, that would be my suggestion. Okay, there are no other hands at this time. Okay, and Cheryl, let me just um, say that the case that you referenced um, occurred here in Austin, Texas. Um, and the, the family has actually filed suit uh, against the hospital. The hospital um, denies that they made that decision, um, but um, it is going to end up um, in the courts. Oh, that's, that's good, because I think, you know, we, we have to challenge this whole determination of quality of life and who gets to make that decision. Cheryl, mm -hmm. so. you mentioned um, the Affordable um, Care Act. Uh, going back to our our question, broadening, will this pandemic broaden um, the divide um, or um, will it widen or bridge the gap um, in terms of health care? Um, That's so a broad you, question. Yeah, but if you think about the Affordable Care Act, um, one of the sort of I don't know how you, you categorize this, negative, positive. So because so many people lost their jobs as a, as a result 
of the pandemic. Um, a lot of those people, the only way they were then able to get health insurance is they had to go through the Affordable Care Act. So you can hope that maybe there were people there who prior to that just thought that's something that's not for me and it's not going to make a difference in my life. Mm -hmm. And hopefully, you know, the fact that it is available um, and that they were able to access it, that people will change their minds about something like that um, mm -hmm. and, and become more supportive of, of making it, um, you know, keeping it as part of our, our, our um, options. Mm -hmm. so we do have some more hands. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, so I'm going to uh, the person with uh, on the phone with uh, uh, 7837. You are now unmuted and can talk. Um, yeah. That's hi, you. this is. Yeah, good. Hi, this is uh, Linda Porrell in San Francisco. Hi, Cheryl. Hi, Linda. Um, I wanted to let you know that here in California, I serve on a local independent living center board and the attorney with our agency, along with several other groups, um, succeeded in changing the California policy regarding quality of life and decision-making about triage recently to, um, to pay more attention to our community. And, uh, you know, it, it was a huge, huge win for the disability community here in California. That is fantastic, because I think that means we need to reach out to you <laughs> to, to learn sort of what you did. Because I know, as I said, in Massachusetts, you know, since they expanded care, care capacity, they just sort of stopped talking about it and everybody stepped back, but it still exists. So we do need to, you know, be mindful of that and we need to change it before something else happens and they put it out again. So definitely follow up with you. Thank you, Linda. All right, no more hands. Oh no, they're, I just lied. <laughs> uh, and then they changed their mind. <laughs> okay. There is somebody. Oh, now, now, now they're 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 just messing with me now. <laughs> uh, I'm Peter Hyde. I'm gonna let you go first. You you should be I'll have a, something on your screen asking you to unmute. Hi, Peter. Hello. There you uh, are. I'm I'm wondering, uh, do we know how many people with disabilities are already part of ACA? I, I don't know that, but that, that would be interesting to find out. That is a good question. I do not have that information as well. Okay, and now we have somebody else on the phone. Um, just making sure that that was actually a, okay. If your area code is, begins with six two six, you ha, should be allowed to talk now. Hi, good morning, everyone. This is Donna Pomerantz, a member of the Multicultural Affairs Committee, and uh, it's great to hear everyone. I am a resident of California, and what I'm going to say um, is very personal to me. Um, it is not enough to have the policy. 
um, it's a wonderful thing to get the policy. Don't get me wrong, right? But um, uh, having uh, almost lost uh, my husband, Mitch, who is a member of our Multicultural Affairs Committee, uh, last year, um, hopefully no one, I'll not have to go through that again, but even though we had the policy, if myself and when I'd leave for an hour or two at the most, and I'd leave either my mother or my sister there with him, because um, I never wanted him to be alone, and thankfully um, both of them were able to do that, um, I had to be an extremely strong advocate. Um, I... I don't want to believe that our medical professionals all have um, bad intentions um, because I saw that they were under a lot of stress being in the critical care unit, but that doesn't mean we're any more or any less than people who don't have disabilities. But I truly believe that if we were not all there, um, that uh, we wouldn't have Mitch here today. And, of course, you know, God still has plans, and he still has work to do, so that's why he's here. So the policy, absolutely. But it doesn't end with a policy. We all need to be there to make sure that that policy is also carried out. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Great point. Thank you. Okay. So, Cheryl, it is, it's fair to assume um, in talking about this from a healthcare uh, perspective, that the pandemic is, for all practical purposes, widening the gap for between people with disabilities and our healthcare system. Is that fair? Um. Well, I I don't like Donna. I don't want to be that negative. Um, but I think it, it's showing the challenges. Um, mm -hmm. Can I say that? It's showing that there are um, assumptions of care that we had that we should not perhaps hold on to. And as Donna said, that we need to like be actively present um, and, and, you know, that, that yeah. So, so it's, it's brought, for me, it's brought to light challenges. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. All right. And, oh, I'm sorry. We have a couple more hands. <laughs> oh, go. Let's go. All right. Uh, Henry and, and uh, Ray Beth May, you should have something on your screen allowing you to talk. There you go. Hi. Hello. Welcome. Hey. I was wondering uh, about non-hospitalization. If, if you're talking about people that are in the hospital, but about, about people who who may may not end up in the hospital, but other some doctors here, is is there any kind of or is this statewide or any kind of federal assistance with the ADA? Uh, would allow people to get help at home for various uh, challenges. Cause 
a lot of times if you have a, a visual surgery on your eyes, you need to be, uh, and if you're working, you, you don't go back to work the next day. It takes a while to, 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 uh, to gain your strength back, mm-hmm. whereabouts. Mm-hmm. So is there any kind of resistance for, for for those individuals who are placed in the position like like that you're you, you, to clarify your question um you're wanting to know if there if there are services for individuals who are not hospitalized but need the services perhaps in their yes. home yes okay cheryl you want to so so i so i'm going on sort of my personal experience and i don't know what states and and like what the law requires so i know from being in the hospital for instance that um they sort of wouldn't let me go home until um we had um a visiting nurses service set up um so I would think at a minimum, that would be something that should be provided. Um, But maybe it depends on your type of insurance. I I don't know. So Mm -hmm. I I would think, you know, absolutely a discussion to have with your doctor. Like, you know, I'm having the surgery. What's going to happen afterwards? Um, and, And I'd say, you know, depending on your age, maybe you reach out to like uh even before you have surgery reach out to the um, independent living center um maybe reach out if if you're elderly reach out to your um your area agency on aging um or if you have like a department of elder services reach out to them and ask like what type of assistance is available and they may say we don't know and send you to your insurance company I will say this, that um, in Texas, what we are um, experiencing for those uh, families who have home health care aides, who are on Medicare waiver programs that allow uh, workers to come into the homes to help people with disabilities, uh, many families have reported during this pandemic that those workers could not come in um, to 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 um, individuals' homes, and that's created um, a real um, burden on the families that care for these individuals. And in the cases where these individuals don't have family, um, it's it's it becomes an emergency. So um, there are, there are gaps in the system there uh, as well. All right. Well, Cheryl, I know that you said uh, you'd have to leave us about two. Would you like to make any closing remarks about our question in general or um, healthcare? Um, well, I think I'm just going to close by saying uh, it, it is, as I said, the, the pandemic has definitely brought up challenges and shown us gaps. 
And, but I don't want us to despair because I think there are solutions and there are ways that we can contribute to finding, um, you know, ways to improve this. And I think we can, we can take some action. So mm -hmm. I apologize, I do have to go. But I, I'll call back in. Thank you so much, Cheryl, and uh, God bless your family. Thank you so much. Goodbye. All right. All right. Um, let me just pick up uh, um, and say this, and then we'll we'll jump in here with uh, the rest of the panelists. Um, and I'm going to uh, self-disclose. Um, seven years ago, I had a heart transplant, and. Um, Prior to that transplant, I needed uh, what was called a bridge to get me to the point where I could receive a heart. Um, and I had to be implanted with a ventricular assist device. And at the time, they were the doctors and the teams were studying my case. The decision was made because I was a blind individual, a person who's blind, that I was not... Um, um, going to be recommended for the uh, device. And I'm not going to go into a lot of details, but after my experience, I started to, to research um, the issues as it relates to transplant, transplantation, whether it's kidney transplant, heart transplant, lungs. Um, there are problems in this country, and there are some cases uh, that have been heard um, the Ninth Circuit, uh, I think there was one in the Fifth Circuit, uh, where a family member who had a child, a young person with uh, autism, who needed a uh, kidney transplant, and they denied that kidney transplant because the team felt like this young person would not be able to follow the medication regimen and, and everything. But the family won uh, the case. Um, but I wanted to just throw that out there because there are other um, implications. So we are going to just jump into this now. And what I want to do is because I, I did want to get Cheryl in uh, before she left, but I want to go back and put all of this uh, pandemic um, into some type of, of context. Um, Cheryl brought to our attention the problems with healthcare, but what about, what about education? What about employment? What about in the area of housing? Rehabilitation services? Um, economics? How has the pandemic affected us economically as people of color and people with disabilities? And finally, the healthcare that, that Cheryl touched on so eloquently. Um, so those are the areas that I'd like for us. They're guidelines. Um, you don't have to, to stick to them. But I want to go to the, to the remaining uh, panelists, um, Charles and uh, Michael. Um, I'm going to have you introduce yourselves, give us and the audience a little spiel about um, your background and who you are, and we'll go from there. I will defer to the illustrious Charles Mossop. 
no pressure, Reverend, at all. <laughs> uh, is that okay, Gene? Shall I? That is that is perfect. That is fine. Um, well, it's uh, my name is Charles Mossop. Uh, I am uh, living here in British Columbia, right on Canada's west coast, on on Vancouver Island, uh, and. Um, uh, my background uh, is in post-secondary education. Um, I have <clears throat> spent 30 years at uh, Thompson Rivers University here in British Columbia, uh, teaching uh, in cultural anthropology and Oriental studies, particularly uh, Chinese studies, um, and also um, involved myself uh, for many years in uh, international development and continued that work after I retired. I've been retired now for about 20 years. And I continued my work in international development. I've been uh, doing it for now about uh, 40 years. Uh, but after I retired, I shifted my focus um, from uh, international development in the areas of education and training specifically uh, to uh, a broader approach uh, regarding um, work with uh, blindness organizations all over the world and uh, issues of rights-based advocacy uh, and other things that are very pertinent to us uh, as disabled uh, individuals. And um, some 11 or 12 years ago, uh, I became involved with the World Blind Union, um, supported in that work by the Canadian National Institute for the Blind, um, after I had finished a six-year stint uh, on their National Board of Directors. And I became president of one of the six regions of the World Blind Union, in particular the uh, North America and Caribbean region. I have been president uh, there now for eight and a half years, Ably assisted, I might add, by my vice president, uh, known to you all, Mr. Mitch Pomerantz. So, <clears throat> I, in 2016, I had the pleasure and privilege of being in Minneapolis to actually uh, speak to uh, the ACB convention at the time. Um, and it's a great pleasure and uh, privilege to be back talking to this uh, committee uh, again. As an historian, when I started thinking about uh, this pandemic and its effects on uh, the, the, disabled, the disabled and vulnerable populations and uh, those who are blind or partially sighted and so on, um, naturally my, my inclination was to turn back to see what uh, history could tell us. And of course everybody's familiar with the uh, with the, the famous Black Death, so-called bubonic plague of the 14th century, that um, really decimated the populations of uh, many countries uh, in Europe, and signaled the end, actually, of the of the old feudal system. All the pandemics uh, in history, well, there pandemics are uh, really there's there's the two there's the 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 bubonic plague and the Spanish flu, which was a true pandemic because it involved the entire uh, globe. But um, bubonic plague and so on were very largely 
confined to Asia and, and Europe uh, as severe epidemics, but some countries lost 25, 50% of their populations. Some cities uh, such as Florence uh, in Italy uh, lost up to 70 or 80% of their population. It was utterly devastating. Um, the follow-on, of course, was economic. Uh, so many people had, uh, had died. And records indicate that the greatest number of deaths occurred amongst the poorer people, amongst laborers and craftsmen, rather than amongst the aristocracy. Uh, and so what happened after the plague died away in uh, um, 1350, uh, uh, um, uh, labor was in short supply. And uh, craftsmen and laborers and other individuals uh, such as that just could go where the money was. And this had never happened before. Serfdom essentially disappeared. And the aristocracy got so upset about this that they approached the king in England, Edward III. And he said, well, this will never do. Um, we have to have people who can maintain us in our lifestyle. So he ordered that wages be rolled back, not to the 1348 level, but to the 1346 level. And the laborers and craftspeople and so on said, essentially, uh, to heck with you, um, the laws of supply and demand prevailed, and they went where the money was, the feudal system broke down. Now, um, the pandemic in, that most people uh, know the most about, of course, is the, uh, is the, the Spanish flu, which struck in 1918. But just before I go on in, into that, I, I just want to point out that something else that happened during the bubonic plague. Um, it, it came, it was brought to England from, from France, um, and that gave rise to xenophobia, a hatred of foreigners. Uh, the Jews were persecuted because they were seen to be outsiders. And disabled people were also persecuted because they were seen to be different, simply different. Simply being different was enough to arouse suspicion, fear, and hatred. Uh, and to some extent, similar things happened after the Spanish flu uh, died away in the early 1920s. Uh, and the response to that was um, isolationism. Countries drew in upon themselves. They didn't want to go through the, something like the war again. And the depression had struck. And it seemed to so many people that the only thing to do about something like that was to withdraw into your own borders, isolate yourself. And what this gave rise to, um, again, was xenophobia, persecution of uh, the Jews and other people, vulnerable populations, because they were different. And that seems to be a recurring theme uh, throughout. And uh, so 
the ultimate development of that kind of isolationism and the nursing of old uh, animosities was uh, the rise of ultranationalism, the appearance of Nazism in Germany, fascism in Italy, and militarism in Japan, and we all know what uh, those led to. Uh, so I realize I'm painting a rather unpleasant picture here, but uh, it, it seems to me that, unpleasant as it is to think about, that there are some uh, parallels uh, here. Absolutely. If you if you think of the banking crisis in two thousand and eight and nine, um, I know there was not a pandemic there, but uh, there was a, um, uh, an economic crisis of a kind uh, that we had not seen since the depression. We thought, and now we're in one which is even worse than that. And what happened, of course, was um, that uh, globalization was scrutinized. Uh, the organizations that had arisen after the Second World War, which were intended to balance things out, to level wealth, to alleviate poverty and so on, I'm thinking of the United Nations, which replaced the League of Nations, I'm thinking of the uh, International Monetary Fund, the World Bank. Um, those, all those appeared in 1945 and the World Health Organization in 1948. And the idea was to have a globalized uh, approach to um, balancing the economic uh, circumstances of, uh, of all countries and as I say, alleviate poverty and so on. But we're still trying to alleviate poverty, as you know. But after the banking crisis, um, those organizations were, were scrutinized. I mean, they all survived. Uh, but what happened was that uh, development aid that was being provided prior to then by the traditional donor countries, the uh, industrialized nations, uh, of the world, uh, those budgets were drastically cut. And this was profoundly negatively felt by the uh, developing countries. And also what happened within the countries that were affected by the banking crisis, that um, social programs suffered. Mm -hmm. And uh, there, there was a feeling, I remember um, uh, a, a politician, a Canadian uh, politician uh, in the province of Ontario uh, at that time, who referred to the, uh, the education of uh, disabled children, uh, as, he, as he put it, what we would consider special ed services and so mm -hmm. on. Mm -hmm. He said, we have to really wonder about whether we can afford that luxury. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, for heaven's sake, you consider the education of youngsters uh, who are have various exceptionalities and various challenges, you consider that a luxury rather than a right. And of course, the uh, Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities makes it clear that education is indeed a right. Mm -hmm. 
And so now we face this pandemic as, as it is now. And we see, unfortunately, uh, xenophobia. We see um, racial profiling uh, and so on. And Canada is by no means immune uh, from, from those kinds of things. Um, it's interesting, our uh, medical health, um, federal um, public health, chief public health officer uh, is a woman of Chinese background. And she has received threats, even death threats, and emails, the usual sort of, you know, go back to China, take your virus with you, and, and these kinds of things. We have to be extremely vigilant. And Cheryl has made this point, I thought, really well, that this has shown us the challenges that, that face us, that it's, it's very easy very easy for the majority population mm -hmm. to look at the minorities, be they racial uh, minorities, vulnerable populations of various kinds, the seniors, and so on, and start to prioritize them, to decide mm -hmm. on who, basically, who gets what. Mm -hmm. And we must be very vigilant to uh, fight against uh, those kinds of things as, as powerfully uh, as, as we can. Uh, I think we need to go about it in a, uh, a balanced fashion. I have uh, three, um, uh, if, if you like, uh, little mantras that, that I try to remember always in the, in the work that, that I do on behalf of CNIB and the Canadian Council of the Blind and the World Blind Union, and then my task is to persuade without pressure, to correct without criticism, and advocate without anger. And I think that as we do those things, um, our effectiveness uh, is, is maximized. But I think the gap will be broadened, unfortunately. The signs are all there, and history is not on our side. But we can, I, I hope, um, minimize that broadening uh, to whatever extent is possible uh, as we advocate for our rights as, as disabled people. And uh, remember that uh, unity of purpose uh, is a real power. And I'll just end by sharing uh, a story from Greek mythology that, that I have used many times uh, about uh, a king who was worried that his kingdom would fall apart after he died because his sons would be uh, at odds with each other, his two sons. So he, he, he brought his two sons together and he gave each of them a stick of wood. And he said, all right, now break the wood in half. And they did that easily. And he said, now put the two halves together and break them. And they were able to do that easily. And he said, now put the four pieces together and break them. And that they could not do. Mm. The lesson simply being in unity, there is strength. Mm. So I would say to us all, remember the four sticks and stick together. Wonderful. Wonderful lesson, um, history lesson, 
Charles. Um, I hope it wasn't it, too much like a lesson. <laughs> it was very, I thought it was very, very educational, very helpful in terms of putting this whole pandemic into some real context. All right, so for, for the sake of time, uh, we'll, we're gonna hold questions for you, Charles, but I'd like to go to Reverend Garrett and um, Reverend Garrett, it's your time. All right, thank you, Dr. Brooks. Um, I w by way of in, in by way of introduction, I am Michael Garrett. I uh, am a retired uh, investment analyst. I worked for uh, J.P. Morgan Chase. So was with what ultimately ended up being J.P. Morgan Chase for 27 years here in the Houston area. Uh, and um, so. My, my that's my work background, but I've been a member of ACB for for about 30 years, uh, hoping and have and served in a number of a number of committees and uh, just trying to help the organization grow and be the best it can be. Um, my 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 comments will probably sound like I'm rambling a little bit. But but I hope hopefully I'll be able to try to pull pull these things together and 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 they'll make some sense. Uh, both Cheryl and Charles have have covered some very uh, interesting topics and, and and maybe maybe I can try to put them in 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 another little context because being an, an analyst an investment analyst I I like numbers uh, I have a few numbers but they're all Couched in this in this whole uh, theme that we have, uh, bridging the gap, uh, the coronavirus will it bridge or broaden the gap? And we look as we go forward, we look at at how these things work together, and from a from a class, from a racial, and from uh, an economic perspective. Let me begin before I start rambling, by um, giving two quotes, and I'm not probably, I'm probably not going to quote them verbatim, but uh, these were quoted here recently. The first one was by some public policy mogul uh, who said uh, that when you start to look at this pandemic, uh, from a racial standpoint, the races are going through two separate pandemics: people of color uh, versus versus uh, the majority. And the other statement is was was rendered not too long ago by uh, Anthony Fauci, our our. Uh, Epidemi, uh, our federal epidemi, epidemiologist. That's a that's a mouthful. Hold uh, <laughs> <Well> up. <laughs> and he said that institutional racism is a contributor to the ultimate uh, uh, impact that people of color have uh, throughout this this pandemic. Mm -hmm. And so, 
when we start to look at, uh, uh, and Dr. Brooks threw out a, a, a lot of areas of of, uh, uh, that, of impact, that not only people of racial racial ethnic, ethnicities, I'm nervous, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm stumbling, and I'm trying to I'm trying to get this out fast. Uh, but people of color, I'll put it that way, people of color. Uh, and it, that extends itself to people with disabilities. So a lot of these trends and numbers that, 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 that we look at affect people with disabilities, and, and we, as people who are blind or vision impaired, can really identify with, a, with the trends and the, and the treatment that, that comes about. We talk about the employment. Uh, people of color are often in in jobs where they cannot social distance, so they have that has a detrimental impact uh, uh, when it comes to the coronavirus. Uh, let me throw out a number here. For instance, from the period from February through April, uh, minority-owned businesses primarily black-owned businesses, fell by 41% in just that three-month period. So you can tell from an economic standpoint how that uh, impacted the, uh, uh, the, the black community. Uh, racial disparities uh, impact unemployment, uh, home ownership, the degree of wealth that that persons have, foreclosures are higher in in minority neighborhoods. The loss of of pure wealth, of course, when you start to measure the gap between uh, uh, people of color and 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 those who are white, the 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 gap has widened. Uh, the uh, the jobs with fewer benefits, uh, lower wages, um, limited protections. So that's mainly insurance. So in the jobs most likely to be held uh, are agricultural, uh, domestic, and and uh, services. For us as blind and visually impaired people, you know, our job markets, even though with technology we have had some improvements, but there are very limited uh, employment industries that, that we can avail ourselves to. So it makes it very difficult to compete, and as things are changing in this in this as a result of this pandemic, uh, we have some challenges before us to get back to work, uh, to work at home. Uh, there's a lack of liquidity. Uh, if there's a lack of liquidity in in people of, in the people of colors, neighborhoods, and communities, there certainly is a lack of liquidity in in for those of us who are blind and visually impaired, because when we start talking about our unemployment rate, it's still well above 50%. Even 
amongst those who want a job. It's still high. Uh, we talk about employment, unemployment emergencies, the, the, the ability to uh, come up with a $400 emergency. How many people who are poor can come up with $400 for an emergency? In many cases, people of color, people who are who are who have a disability have uh limited uh areas of healthy food and health care itself housing rent home ownership uh there's a disparity there uh it is estimated that in the white community seventy three percent of of uh whites own their own homes, whereas only 41% of people in the black community own theirs. Uh, and, and the numbers go up a little bit for for people in the Latino community and the, and the Asian community. So there's a huge financial need. People uh, in the areas of student loans, child care, when you have a, an emergency, those, those are, there are some problems there. Now, let me quickly run through here. There are some suggestions, and these might be very con- controversial. However, uh, I'm not above throwing out a little controversy. <laughs> but but there, there are some suggestions that uh, that that uh, some of these public policy moguls have put out there. They say expand unemployment benefits more access to uh, no-cost testing for the coronavirus, more cash assistance directly to uh, people, to the families of people with co- of color, more targeted assistance to minority-owned businesses, Pro- uh, prohibit uh, eviction and foreclosures, at least to the end of the year. Ease uh, student loan debt. Strengthen, oh, this is a good one. Strengthen the Consumer uh, Finance uh, Protection Bureau. This is one that that the current administration is trying to abolish the whole thing. (laughs) Suspend uh, negative credit reports and enact and fully enforce employment discri- uh, a, 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 an employment uh, discrimination statute. Those are some of the things that, 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 are, that are suggested that might help equalize the, the, the unemployment rate and the wealth gap in our country. And uh, I mean, I have some other numbers and things that, mm-hmm. that, that, that show the disparity, but, but by and large, we have uh, a problem uh, with the haves and the have-nots, and the haves want to keep theirs, and, and, and they do not want to let the have-nots have any. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I'll quit rambling right now. <laughs> Very well, very well um, said, um, Reverend Garrett. Um, l- let me just say this. Um, 
in terms of where we are educationally. Uh, for many of us, uh, we're looking to August, early September for our young folks to go back to school, colleges and universities. And what this pandemic has done, it has, it has basically shown uh, the inequalities when it comes to, as Reverend Garrett pointed out, some of the, the economic, uh, the wealth um, um, disparities. But what we're finding in, in, in our areas is that when we moved to online virtual classrooms, there were many, many people who did not have internet. You would think, oh, everybody has internet. Everybody has a cell phone. Not true. Our districts found uh, when they rolled out the, the uh, virtual classes, uh, learning online, that about two-thirds of the students in our Austin district did not have access. So what the district was left to do was to take school buses, put satellites on them, run them into neighborhoods where they thought they had the highest concentration of um, families, apartment complexes, uh, et cetera, et cetera, so that these families could have internet access. So the from an educational um, perspective, moving forward, um, there are going to be some real issues. But for the sake of time, guys, I want to open up for questions. We have about uh, 10 minutes to go, roughly. Um, do we have any questions for the audience, for Charles, for, uh, for Reverend Garrett? And I believe Cheryl joined us again. Looks like she did. Okay, we, I, we do have some questions. So we're gonna, Ray Campbell, you are, you are um, able to talk, sir. Good, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, Ray Campbell here. I'm, off, I'm honored to be officer liaison, officer liaison to the Multicultural Affairs Committee. Um, you've kind of laid out uh, a very realistic, but unfortunately very grim picture of things. I'd like to ask each of you, with the current situation in our world and calls for change, how hopeful are you that some of this will, we, we know it won't happen overnight, but some of the calls for change that we're hearing will result in improving uh, some of these uh, situations? I'm the moderator. I'd like to go at that first, <laughs> if you don't mind. If you don't mind, I am. I am very optimistic. Um, in my lifetime, um, for the first time, I've seen young people get involved. And throughout the '60s and '70s, uh, the civil rights movements in this country, um, we struggle to get young people um, involved. And for the first time, you look around every city from coast to coast, you have young folks out there. You have black folks, you have white folks, you have brown folks. You have people who are concerned about where this country is and where it's headed. And I believe that 
because of the uh, the, the 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 diversity uh, from these um, what you, demonstrations, uh, whatever, will make a difference. That's my two cents. Let me let me jump in because er, earlier when we when we did our practice run. Uh, Dr. Brooks asked if if there was a spiritual aspect to this to this to this absolutely and the hope and 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 I believe that what's happening is not a coincidence. I pointed out this morning on our on our service that that we we've got three things working. We've got the the, the pandemic. Uh, we we've got uh, uh, um, uh, these the the, the, the Racial upheaval, and and throughout the the United States, from time to time, we get these natural disasters, such as earthquakes, such as uh, tornadoes and hurricanes and things like that, that can be devastating. All of these can have tremendous economic and personal impact on us, and it, and it brings us together here in in the Houston area when we had Harvey. It brought people together, no matter who's, who, what color their skin was, somebody needed help. And there was somebody there to lend a hand, to lend a boat. And so it can be done. But it takes a change of heart. It takes everybody looking at a person and saying, that person's life does matter. Mm-hmm. And I need to help them. Very good. Um, this is Cheryl. Can you guys hear me? Absolutely, yes. So, so I I think that, uh, and, and I am more positive than I am negative because I know that there are people who have been working for change for a long, long time, and I think those people will continue to do the work. So hopefully what we're seeing today brings in more people to say, yes, I'm going to join the fight. And then I understand that it's a long, long fight. So, but I think people will continue to work for a change that is, you know, ultimately inclusive for everyone. Okay. Charles, do you have uh, any thoughts? Yeah, I, I certainly agree um, with what, uh, with what's being said. I, in, in my comments, I, I, said that I, I was uh, afraid the gap would broaden and history was not on our side. In, indeed, uh, I think that would be uh, the case in the short run. But I think given what's happening the world over now, uh, precipitated, of course, by the uh, upheaval uh, there in, in the United States, uh, will ultimately lead to um, a change uh, in um, in, in thinking uh, about these issues. I, mm-hmm. I'm always a little reluctant to talk about the United States. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm an outsider. We're, we're just watching what's, what, what's going on. Um, and, uh, but you are our neighbors and uh, we, we do feel, we do feel for you in, in, in what, uh, in, in what you're going through. Um, but uh you know, Reverend uh, Garrett was talking about a spiritual 
uh, perspective to all of this, which is something that I like to look for as well. And I'm reminded of the words that uh, I shall overturn until he come whose right it is. And I think we are in one of those overturnings uh, mm -hmm. at, at the moment. And I, I think we'll come out, I certainly hope, we will, um, we will come out uh, stronger and uh, that, um, that, that the United States, uh, as, you know, the, the, uh, a huge uh, engine for democracy and an engine for good, will, will triumph uh, in, in all of this. I, I remember um, way back in the, in the 60s, I was living in Europe. Uh, at then and working in uh, in London at, at the time, and there was a huge earthquake uh, in Yugoslavia, as it was then in the town of Skopje, and um, uh, many nations rallied around, and uh, the United States uh, sent massive aid to Yugoslavia, uh, which at the time was was essentially a dictatorship under Marshal Tito and uh, had a system uh, wholly unlike uh, anathema to uh, American democracy, but America was there and helped. And that greatness is still there. You don't have to make America great again. It's always been great in the minds of many people. And I think um, democracy leadership will triumph. It will take time, but I am optimistic. Very good. Um, we're just about out of time, guys. I want to just briefly thank uh, each of you, uh, Charles, Cheryl, Michael, uh, for um, participating uh, in this uh, panel discussion. Um, and I don't know if we have any other uh, questions out there and if we have time for them. Um, I see a couple of raised hands, but since we like have two minutes, mm -hmm. I was gonna leave that to you. Whether you want me to call call on somebody really fast, let's do one really fast. Okay, we'll do that. Um, we're going to Sandra. You've had your hand up for a while. You are allowed to talk. Hi, Sandra. Hello. Um, good afternoon, Dr. Brooks. Um, my name is Sandra Sermons, and like Donna, I also am a member of Multicultural Concerns. Um, I first of all, I just want to say an amazing panel. Um, you, all, Dr. Brooks, you always do an amazing job, and and all of you do really. So very well done. Um, my question: These guys just, make it easy. <laughs> um, just one quick question for you, uh, Charles. Um, could you kind of uh, reiterate your um, your mantra? You said there were three, you know, like um, agitate without something, you know, persuade okay. with that. Yes. I got you. Um, yes, it is persuade without pressure, correct without criticism, and advocate without anger. I love that. All Absolutely. right, we're officially right. out of time. <laughs> okay, guys, thank you so very much. 
We could Thank have gone for another hour and a half, but um, this has been wonderful. And hopefully uh, the ACB um, members uh, who are participating in the conference got something out of it. Thank you and have a wonderful day. Thank you, you all. Thank you. Oh, thank, you. thank you. Thank you, everybody.